Here we are now, September 14th, uh, 2014, lecture uh, discussion number 168 on the book of Romans. And yes, we are in the book of Romans for all the doubters out there. And you're sending me mail again, and that's really cool. They disappeared for the summer a little bit, but now I've gotten all kinds of fun mail again. Um, and there are doubters out there. They think that uh, Joshua chapters 5 through 10 are not applicable to Romans 9, but they are. Joshua chapters 5 through 10 are directly uh, need to be evaluated in the context of Romans 9. And that's, by the way, Romans 9 is where we confronted uh, Jacob, Esau, and this is really where we're at. It doesn't seem like it. We have Jacob, Esau, uh, the Pharaoh, and the potter, which of course is God, and the clay. Okay? So those things, notice how I wrote that. I did that purposely. Jacob's most significant recorded event is when he wrestles with Christ and comes up with a limp. And all of this, again, is Romans 9, and whereby Esau's most significant recorded event is where he rushes to embrace uh, Jacob. And, and I, I have said that definitively, that Jacob's most significant recorded event is his uh, wrestling and limp, and Esau, the one that is the most important to know about Esau, in my view, both of those, I believe, are the Things that if you're going to learn one thing about Jacob, learn that he wrestled Christ and came up with a limp. If you have one thing to learn about Esau, uh, recognize that he rushes towards his brother and embraces him exactly the same as Christ is depicted in Luke 15:20. So he becomes this face of God, it says in Genesis. If you're going to learn one thing about both of those men, that's the thing to learn. Now, what is it about Pharaoh and what is it about the potter and the clay? And all of those are together in order to explain uh, Romans 9.13. And, and I say that you cannot correctly understand Romans 9.13 unless you understand the reason for and the meaning of Jacob's limp and the, uh, and the Esau, uh, Luke 15.20 connection, which is what some would call the prodigal son parable, but it's really the parable of the two sons. Anyway, Jacob's limp then now becomes uh, important because I compare, in order to understand Jacob's limp, I have to understand that he has an event with Moses. Moses refuses or doesn't, it does not uh, bear the sign of circumcision to his descendants. So Moses and Zipporah and circumcision abbreviate it. Okay, I won't. I can't. Spell it right now. <laughs> we'll start with circum. Jacob's limp. Moses is not bearing circumcision to his direct descendants in violation of Genesis 17, 10 through 14 uh, are together because both of them are confronted by Christ. And then, of course, uh, we have added to that, we have Joshua's event which ends in his lament over the dead 36. And he also has Christ in front of him. So those three men have this relationship because Christ comes to them and they are linked together and they form, if you want to think of it this way, they form a a triad as opposed to a triune. So I would have Jacob, 
and I will have Moses, and I'll have Esau, I'm sorry, I'll have Joshua. So that's my thing that we're trying to solve so that I can go back to Romans 9 and correctly understand why he says, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. And each one of those three provide meaning to, to the other. And that's my plan. That's what I'm doing. Solving the question of Jacob's limp. What does it mean? Why does God do this? Why does he, what is this symbol of all the things he could have done? And why does he wrestle with him? What's the wrestling mean? Why do I have the limp or the wound, if you will? Coming to understand that aspect um, helps one uh, to not blunder at Romans 9.13. So hopefully we're well on our way to figuring that out. And, uh, and right now we're at Joshua. We have, we've, Done a little bit of Jacob's limp, not a lot, but we've now gone to Joshua to deal with the beautiful garment. Because that beautiful garment causes a lot of problems. And it has some relationship, somehow I will try to make the case, uh, to Jacob and his limp and Moses and his failure to um, circumcise his descendants. So that's what we're trying to do. Once we get through uh, Jacob and Esau at that, at Romans 9, then all I have to do is figure out the Pharaoh and the potter and the clay. So you almost, if you wish, you almost have a uh, an equation there. If Jacob, Moses, and Esau, and I'm going to add to that the Pharaoh... Pharaoh does some phenomenal things. Which one is the most significant? Because uh, that's what I'm going to try to approach it from. And then I have the potter and the clay. And that will solve Romans 9. I hope that makes some sense, especially those folks who are writing me not understanding where I'm trying to go. And I mention it again because, as I just said, I'm accused of not following my plan. To me, to be more correct, I'm, I'm accused of not having a plan. Yes, ma'am. Oh, sorry. I meant I put Esau in the wrong place. Thank you. So I solved this. I solved Jacob and Esau. And then I solved the triad of Jacob and Esau with Moses and Joshua. I add that to Pharaoh. I add that to the potter and the clay. And I've solved Romans 9. Probably one of the most misunderstood passages in all the New Testament. And Paul is the Holy Spirit through Paul makes sure that you see these references. He gives you Jacob and Esau. He doesn't give you Moses and Joshua, but you solve that limp by finding out what's happened here. He gives you the Pharaoh, and then he gives you this potter and clay. That's your context. Plus, he tells you from the beginning it's about the nation of Israel. And that should help you do it. Uh, but unfortunately, that's not always the case, if ever the case. But again, I, I'm told that I don't have a plan. And I know that's difficult to imagine that people will accuse me of not having a plan. But over the years, I've learned that, uh, that the Internet will wildly jump to suppositions, irrespective of the obvious contrary evidence that I provide. What could possibly cause somebody to conclude that I meander without any focus? I don't understand that. It's inexplicable. But it happens a lot. And so I feel this uh, need to uh, present my defense. That's what I'm doing. So that's the plan, in case you think I don't have one. I do, and I'm able to articulate it 
whether it makes any sense to anybody but me or not. So, where are we in the plan? We are at Joshua. Uh, we have unfinished business. We have Joshua. If you haven't been around for a while or if you haven't listened for a while on the Internet, Joshua 5 through 10 is essentially where we're at. We have Joshua and Achan. Joshua and Achan have this extraordinary uh, conversation. The beautiful garment. And what else do I have to do there? I think that, oh, the dead 36. Yeah, I can't, can't, I can't forget about those guys. So that's where we're at lately as we try to solve all of this stuff. We get some unfinished business. So what happens? If you haven't been here, I should recap it a little bit. Obviously, we have the Battle of Jericho. It goes very, very well. And then all of a sudden, we have this catastrophic event where we have 36 dead out of 3,000. More than 3,000. It's about 3,000. It could be much more. But um, 3,000 plus go up to fight the next battle at the next city, and they get routed. And there's this tremendous... Uh, hysterical, panicked, moaning and weeping. They just fall to the ground and they're just absolutely in total despair over the death of 36 men out of, out of at least 3,000 men that attacked. And you have to explain that. Why, why would they respond this way? And the answer to why they responded that way is in Joshua 10 why we have to get there, and we got there a little bit last week. Because Joshua, in his crying and screaming fit, to lack of a better way to explain it, his rant, if you will, it was just this falling on the ground type thing that he does, trying to depict it as I see it here. He mentions the five Amorite kings. So why did Joshua mention the five or the Amorites? Did he see them as the greatest threat? Because he says to God, why did you bring us here just to have the Amorites kill us? And I submit to the key to all of this is the anatomy of it, is the, the order of it, listing the steps, attempting to figure out a timeline, uh, the exact order. So that's what I'm going to do now. Joshua has this t- complete breakdown because 36 men out of 3,000 or better are dead. What causes that? Is it realistic? Most people would say no, but it isn't. So we're going to start in our timeline. Think of our timeline like this. And this will be point A. That's where we're going to start. And point A is where I have the walls of Jericho fall flat, collapse. So the walls of Jericho fall flat. The next thing that happens in the text, call it B, the very next thing that happens on our timeline right there, is the men of Israel now rush into Jericho. So I have the army of Israel. They attack. The walls fell flat. The city is exposed. And I have this military force rushes into Jericho. The next thing that happens if you follow the text, item C on our timeline, is Rahab is rescued. Rahab and her household, her family, and she is rescued 
the two men that she protected are sent into uh, Jericho. Their job is to save Rahab. Remember, she has the true cord. The true cord is the color of the crimson worm. It's the color of uh, the the second goat of Azazel, for Azazel and Yom Kippur. And she has the true cord, which is a picture of Christ. And she is rescued out of the collapsing Jericho by the two messengers that she believed. And so start considering your symbolism. What's happening? Who does she represent? What does the collapse of Jericho represent? If you were here previously, you'll know that that is a revolutionary. That is a revelationary reference. So that's so far so good. And the city then is burned. That's D. So there's the order again. The walls fall flat. Walls fall flat. Men rush in. Rahab is drawn out by the two messengers because she has the true cord. She has the picture of Christ. And then Jericho is burned. Joshua burns it. What's left of it. And then what comes next is the silver and the gold. And this is an interesting word. And the vessels, the vessels of bronze and iron, are, they are brought out and put into the house of God or the Lord. And that's all capitalized, so that is a YHVH reference. So that is the Lord God. And then Joshua declares, Joshua declares that Jericho is cursed and any man that rebuilds it is also cursed. Okay, with me so far? So to recap, the first thing that happens to try to figure out is I've got the walls fall flat, the men of Israel rush in, Rahab is brought out by the two messengers, her and her family and her household, the city is burned, the silver gold vessels are brought to the house of the Lord, and Jericho is cursed. Now, inside that, somewhere in that timeline, Achan steals the beautiful garment. He finds the beautiful garment. And we talked about in previous weeks what, if God calls something a beautiful garment, what does he usually mean? He says that is a beautiful covering. What does he mean? What is he referencing? Usually he's referencing himself. Christ, God himself, is the beautiful garment, right? So we have to look at that very carefully. And that, by the way, is what Achan did. If you remember, Achan says in his confession that he saw the beautiful garment, decided it was beautiful, it was valuable, and then he took it. So who does that remind you of? That's almost word for word, E. So that's something he says in his confession. He saw the beautiful garment, coveted, and took. Saw and took. So you have to now compare Achan with Eve. And that helps you with the beautiful garment. Does Eve end up with a beautiful garment? Oh, yes, she does. Her ugly garment is taken off, just like our ugly garment will be taken off. It is obvious to anyone who is watching, as opposed to listening, that I have an ugly garment. 
And the sooner it's taken off and replaced with a beautiful garment, the better off everyone will be that has to look at me. Same for me. But again, Achan steals this beautiful garment that he finds in the city of Jericho. Where does it, does it happen? We have to put it in our timeline. Did it happen during B, when the men of Israel rushed in, did it happen before Ahab, Rahab was brought out? Sorry. Obviously, it had to happen before the city was burned. How about the silver and the gold and the vessels of the, going into the house of the Lord or being taken into the house of the Lord? Is that where Achan then slips it out? Runs off with it? Where does it fit in the timeline? That becomes very important. Because you see... Um, I want to know things now. I'm going to draw a picture of Jericho. And the walls fell down. And if you were here, I said the the walls were extraordinary. I believe they were very large. They fell down. And there was a lot of damage done. But clearly there were still survivors. It's a large city. The walls didn't cover all of it. Now I have the army of Israel running in. Where are, where is the gold and the silver and the bronze and the iron vessels? Where is it? Where would the king be? King of Jericho, he'd probably be dead center, wouldn't you guess? Rahab, we know, was on the outside wall, right? So, and those walls are very tall, in my view, very wide. They had room to put houses on them. So, so ask that question. Where were the treasures of Jericho? Clearly, I don't believe they were scattered all throughout Jericho. I think they were in a centralized location. And I think it's logical that the treasures of Jericho were with the king of Jericho, or at least in some kind of close proximity they had to be defended if by, if against nobody else, the people of Jericho. There's always somebody who wants to be king. Therefore, Achan didn't just come across them by wandering about. So you have to ask, when did he find them? How did he find them? I don't believe he stumbled into the vault of Jericho by some chance. I don't think that makes sense. So what's my alternative? I propose that uh, this is his assignment. This is the specific task that he has. Does the nation of Israel know that there is gold inside and silver and treasures inside of Jericho? Yes. How do they know it? God tells them. Does he know it? Yes. He's omniscient. Do they have any idea where it could be? Do they want it? By the way, why would they want it? Prior to coming into the promised land, do they have any food issues? No, they got free food. Everything's working out pretty good for them. What are they going to use money for? What was gold and silver used for, specifically, mostly? And now here here comes this question. Did Achan and his men, notice how I'm phrasing that because I'm implying, inferring something. Did they know beforehand that there was a beautiful garment in Jericho? Or were they stunned to find it when they came across, they're coming in just for the gold and the silver with the vessels, and they, and they come across uh, this beautiful garment, 
and they were stunned to find it. And notice that I am consistently uh, implying that Achan has authority, aren't I? I am giving you the impression that Achan is in charge of this operation. And that's based on the fact that Achan ends up taking the garment. I don't think it's logical that he could take the garment by himself. There's too many people coming into that city. There's a whole army of Israel. It's flooded. How do I, how do I steal something that everyone might know is there? Because God says, don't take the accursed thing, which I, I also say the word means devoted or dedicated thing. Or if you will, don't take my stuff. That's what he says to them. And Achan ends up with possession of it, and I, could, I don't believe he could have acted alone. That's my opinion, and I'll make the case as best I can. Even though that the gold and silver that he also stole totaled about 10 pounds, maybe max, based on our understanding of shekel weight and wedges of gold. So he might have taken 10 pounds. And none, nonetheless, even that that isn't very much, uh, Joshua 6.19 is, is clear as it can be. All of the gold and all of the silver was to go into the house of the Lord. It belonged to God, and he makes it clear. All the gold and all the silver and the vessels come to me. They're mine. Bring them to me. And Achan stole the beautiful garment, and he stole some of the silver and some of the gold. Again, not very much. I think there's a huge amount. And I don't want you to disregard this word right here. Your internet people, vessels. You see, uh, uh, as I pointed out previously, there's something really wrong going on in Jericho. Something really different here. Something wrong as wrong can be. Certainly something distinct. Because the very next city, AI, which is where the 36 are dead, uh, when they go up to attack AI, God tells them, keep the gold, keep the animals. Not Jericho. Pardon me? Oh, was it somebody in here? Again, there's something very different. In Jericho, the gold, the silver, the vessels, the, uh, the garment, they were gods, they belonged to gods. God, and he said, kill the animals. So what's the, what are you thinking now? Why would anyone assume that the animals of Jericho were the same as the animals of the next city, Aon? Why would you assume that these are animals that you can keep? Obviously they're not. So what kind of animals are these in Jericho? What had happened to them? Why did God want them all killed? What's the difference between a Jericho animal and an AI animal? What's the difference between the gold of Jericho, or the silver of Jericho, the vessels of Jericho, the beautiful garment of Jericho? What makes those things that you bring to God? Because that's what you were supposed to do. Go get it all and bring it to God. As if he is standing there taking an accounting of it. And Achan steals the garment and some gold and silver. What's he doing? What's his motive?
Why would any, to repeat, why would anyone assume that the animals of Jericho were the same as the animals that Israel was allowed to keep? What exactly now were these vessels of Jericho? What is their origin? How old are they? What were they used for? What's the garment used for? Why does God want them back? Because the implication is is that he wants them back. I'm getting ahead of myself there. So let's back up. How many men do you think were assigned to to go in and get that treasury and bring it out and give it to God. How big a treasury was it? Lindsay Bell, um, I don't know how to say this kindly, but he is... Uh, oh, do I have two? No wonder. Who's the other one? Do they both belong to me? Oh, okay. So I'm only half guilty. Okay, that's probably a good idea. You on the internet, it's a, it's a grandchild problem that we're having here. How many men were assigned to bring the treasury of Jericho to the house of the Lord? How many? Fifty? Hundred? We're getting together, uh, you know, pre-battle. Orders are coming down. Here's how we're going to do this. Walls are going to fall. We're going to rush in. Uh, we have things we have to secure. God says, don't touch that stuff. Bring it to me. It's my stuff. Don't take it. So we're going to have to assign people to do that. So who's in charge? I'm submitting that Aiken's in charge. And I'm saying that he has people underneath him, directly underneath him, and then quite a bit down the road underneath him. How many men is it going to take to go in and get that treasure? How much is it? How rich was Jericho? How much did it weigh? He takes 10 pounds. How much did they have? A couple thousand pounds? Clearly, Achan saw and took the garment primarily. He says so in Joshua 7.20. I'm going to make the case that there's two possibilities. Either this is a very well orchestrated, considered plan, or they came in and they saw that garment and they said, wow, we got to have that thing. Aiken said, I'm taking it. Let's throw a little of his gold and a little silver with it. Ten pounds of gold. Maybe that's all that happened. Some people believe that. Perhaps ten pounds of gold and silver is all he could conceal and carry, and they think that he acted alone. He says that he took the garment because, wow, he could not leave it there. Once he saw it, he had to have it. Obviously, it's unlikely, in my view, I'm proposing that, that it's very unlikely that he's the only one that saw it. I think everybody that was there saw it. I'm suggesting that when the garment was found, either at that point, the men that were assigned to that task had a meeting. Here's your committee meeting. And those in Aiken's immediate area marveled over what they found. And Achan asserted possession. He had the highest rank. And the others would allow it as long as that he promised them something. Now, that's if they didn't know it was there. But there's every indication God says there is something there. Did 
they know it was there, in which case they had to, did they design the plan to steal it before they even entered Jericho? And if that's the case, what's the motive? Again, when did this all this happen? I gotta figure out where it goes. Obviously it's, 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 it's between here and here. My conclusion is that Achan and his force, or his platoon, reached the, the Jericho treasury first. They're the first ones there, and I think that's by design. I, I think it, it, they either planned it or it was planned for them. Did they know beforehand that they would be the first to the treasury? I believe they did. And I think that they had the messenger report from Rahab, didn't they? They had two guys that went in and talked to Rahab. And she gave them details about the city. I wonder if those two messengers reported seeing the king of Jericho wearing the beautiful garment. And if, he, if they did, then it would be throughout the whole uh, Israeli army that there is something spectacular in here. Did Rahab divulge the information? How good of spies, how good of information did I have? What's my reconnaissance like? All of that to say just how complicated is this event? How premeditated is it? Just how many lies were told to Joshua then? By whom and when? And again, back to it, what's the motive of these men? It can't be to be wealthy. There really isn't any wealthy involved here. I don't even think you can make the case that Israel had a monetary system. Babylon did. Jericho did. Did Israel need money? What were they going to buy? They had manna. It's very possible, of course. But again, how premeditated is this? How many lies then are told to Joshua? Who tells them? When do they tell them? And were all the lies connected, as, as all lies usually are? Okay, so, so far so good, I hope. Now we'll move on to the next part of the timeline. What happens next? What happens next is, I'm on EFG now in my timeline. What happens next is that men were sent. Men were sent to recon the next city, Aot. So I have men sent. What's the obvious questions now? How many men? It isn't the two messengers like it was in Jericho. It's men. How many men? And, and how big is uh, AI? It's between twelve and 15,000. If you count children, you might get to 20,000. Men and women, twelve to 15,000. It could be double or triple that. It's hard to tell how to count. Fairly large city. And they, uh, they come back and they say to Joshua, don't send all of Israel. You don't have to. This, don't send them. Don't send. Don't weary the people. So don't weary the people. There's no sense in that. This is a small city with few people. That's the report that the men, 
that we have to decide how many of them are, come back and tell Joshua. See, ask if the first two statements, don't send the people, don't weary the people, ask if that's connected to the obvious lie that there are just a few people there. Because that's an obvious lie. So, who's lying to Joshua and why are they doing it? Are they connected to the stealing of the beautiful garment? Next, what happens is 3,000 men, about, could be a little bit more, could be between three and 4,000, could be a little bit less. I think it's between three and 4,000. Uh, go up to fight. So I have G, H, Nam, and I. 3,000 men go to fight, and 36 are killed. And because those 36 are killed, Israel is hysterical. Joshua is hysterical. And we have this lament of Joshua. And this moaning despair because 36 are killed in a combat operation. And obviously, the reason the despair is there is that this is the first casualties that Israel has experienced, the second generation of Israel. It's the first time they lost a single man. And Israel did not expect anyone of Israel to die. You see that again in Joshua chapter 10, where they all go out and they all come back. 10.21. Every single soldier returns. No, no one is killed. In a much larger campaign. I want you to consider the whole concept of the promised land. Israel's second generation is entering the promised land. What did they expect? Did they expect death? They're entering the promised land. I want you to put, apply that to yourself in case you think I don't do applicational sermons. You're entering the promised land. Tomorrow, the, all of us are entering the promised land. What are you expecting? Anybody expecting death, famine, disease? No. You're expecting what? Safety, life, milk and honey. Right? I think they expected that no one would die, and they were right. Jericho, no one died. Now I have 36 dead men. God is in their midst, uh, to go back a little bit. No record of anyone dying with Christ in their midst. You go through the Old Testament, when Christ is moving through, everybody that's in his, that he's in the midst of is living. Most of them are healed. That's what he did. That's God. God's presence and death are incompatible by very definition. When we're reestablished, when we're resurrected, post-resurrection, in the restoration of all things, when we're given our new bodies and we're in the promise, the blessed promise, there's not going to be any more death. That's his promise. No one's going to expect anybody to die ever again. I'm telling you that Israel has that 
at the forefront of their mind. And I realized that Israel had seen the death of the first generation, but the first generation was in the wilderness. Now they're in the promised land. They're on the promised land side of the Jordan River, the life side, uh, if you will, of the Jordan River. Uh, last week, uh, Bill the Fast uh, came up and made the point um, that within the lament of Joshua was this complaint that God should have left them on the other side of the Jordan River. He shouldn't have brought them. Joshua said, you should never have brought us over here. Where 36 of us have died. Out of, what, million? should never have brought us here. Today, we, we don't understand this. And God would never do that, by the way, because the, the death side or the wilderness side of the Jordan River is not someplace He's going to leave anyone. It's not what He does. He calls Himself the resurrection and the life. Jordan, if you've been here for the many years I've said this, uh, it actually means death and judgment descending from Adam. Uh, Joshua 3.16, the Jordan River is identified as descending from Adam and it is death and judgment. That is why Christ uh, uh, is baptized in it. That is why the uh, axe head is floated up from it. All of those are pictures of resurrection. God will never leave his children in, in on the death side. Uh, he won't do it. It's impossible for him to do it. And Joshua's statement is offensive to him. To say that that's what he should have done is offensive. Okay. 3,000 go up. 36 die. One out of 100 just to make the math easy. What's the most obvious of the obvious questions now? Think about, put yourself in the position, you're the general of the army. You go up your job, 3,000, 3,600 of you, just again make the math easy, your job is to go up. You go up, and you're routed. Only 36 are dead. What, what are you going to do? What's your first thing you're going to do? You're back at the camp with the rest of the guys. You got uh, 2,964 guys. What are you going to do, General? You're going to identify the 36 dead. Who are they? And then what are you going to do? You're going to try to find out how it was that of, of, of all the men, how was it that these were the ones that were killed? Where were they killed? Who killed them? Where in the battle were they? I, I go back to David is going to kill Uriah in an act of great evil because he raped Bathsheba. Uh, again, anybody that thinks that Bathsheba participated in that, she was a child. In the sense of a child between the ages of 15 and 18, probably. Uh, David raped her. text is obvious. You see these movies with Bathsheba as some kind of temptress. It's just nonsense. They're not reading. And he sends Uriah to die. How does he do it? Does he put him at the back? No, he puts him at the front. So I want to know, where were these 36 during the fight? How was it that they were caught? How exactly did this go down? What's the other really cool question to think about? 
in this battle. There's 30,000 men, at least, that went up there. What do I think? Who's the story about, ultimately? Achan, stealing the beautiful garment. Was Achan at the fight? Did he, was he one of the 3,000? Was Achan's men, were they the ones that lie to Joshua? How much is involved, how much of the second battle is carried over from the first battle? Did you think that this is compartmentalized? I have a Jericho battle where something is stolen and it has nothing to do with the AI battle. It has completely different people in it. There is no Aiken, there is no 36 men here, nothing. It's completely different. Whoever said things here had nothing to do with what was said there. See, I don't think that's defensible. So I want to know if Achan is one of the 3,000 that go up. And then what do I want to know? How come he wasn't killed? He's the guy that stole the beautiful garment. Who are these 36? And we went over the numerology if you were here. And anytime you see 3-6, you always end up with 666. And I did all of that. My pen's now dead. A couple of weeks ago, I would urge you to, if you're into numerology, I would urge you to look that over and you'll find it. Uh, the 36 has an evil connotation to it. In any event, the death of these 36 is traumatic to Israel, and it should be. And as usual, no one assumes that the death of the 36 is the fault of the 36. Everybody that seems to read this story thinks, ooh, 36 completely innocent guys were killed in the second battle and they had nothing to do with the stealing of the garment. They had nothing to do with Achan. But yet, it's 666 reference. In other words, no one comes forth to question what these 36 may have been involved in that resulted in their deaths. Instead, what do we do? What did, what did Joshua do in his lament? He calls God a liar. He calls God an evil, wicked sadist who delights in killing the, the very people of Israel that trust in him. And, and that, by the way, is very familiar. I, I hope it's familiar to you. It should be familiar to you. It's the predominant offering from the evolutionary monistic philosophers who dominate the media and the academia in our culture today. They're always saying that God is evil. They're always saying that God is a sadist. Look at all of the trauma. Look at all of the despair. Look at the, the people that died in a hurricane or a flood. Look at how evil your God is. He's killing all these innocent people. He's a cosmic sadist. And once again, they describe God, and then they simultaneously deny that God exists. And that logic is bizarre. It's relevatory is what it is. It's, that's, that's the kind of thinking that's blinded by hatred. But I'm digressing again. Or still, whichever one applies. I'm posing, as you know, if you've been here for the last few weeks, that the 36 dead that died in the second battle are very much involved in the stealing of the garment. I think it's obvious. And they are not innocent. Uh, they aren't, they didn't go into that fight, the second battle, not knowing what they had done in the first battle. And, but to be fair to the other side, I'm going to demonstrate a logical disconnect on the theological side. 
The majority opinion, as you know, if you have commentaries in your Bible, is that the 36 that are dead are, in fact, innocent and not connected at all to Achan or the stealing of the garment. And God allows them to die because Achan, uh, completely unconnected from them, um, is, causes the death of 36. And it's all capricious and all arbitrary, and these 36 happen to die. That's the majority opinion. And then, and then they say that God orders the death of Achan's innocent children because they insist the children somehow conspired with their father and they're, they're guilty, even though they're probably age eight and below. Because Achan was born in the wilderness and his children would have been born in the wilderness. And they were in the wilderness 40 years, do the math. So I just go, what? How, how do I deal with that? But that's the majority opinion, and I guarantee you that this Bible, with its commentary, has it. And I just wrote, "Are you kidding?" across it when I came to it. But that's what the, this one had. I am confident that the, whoever he copied his commentary from, because commentators are usually lazy, uh, they had the same idea. So how about this instead? How about the 36 are guilty of conspiring with Achan, and they are buried with Achan, and the children are simply innocent? That's another digression. I'm, my supposition is that a conspiracy clearly has occurred, choices have been made, and death results, but I want to know how these 36 are killed. They attack. They're attacking. If they're part of the garment theft, then they want to go to AI. Then they're the ones that say, don't send and don't weary the people. They're the ones that lie to Joshua. And it, but God says somebody lied to Joshua. So this is the only place it could have happened in Scripture. Here it is. Right there. Somebody deceives Joshua. And this is a deception. Don't sin. Don't weary. Few people. All deception. And the men that he sent... And immediately after this happens, 36 men are killed. So I want to know if these 36 and these 36, or, or I'm sorry, if these 36 men and these men are the same men. I think it's obvious that they are by the context. So let's reset it a second. These 36 men are going to, are going to attack this other city. They got 3,000 guys with them. How do they think this is going to work out? What's their plan? What do they think is going to happen? Do they think that the attack will succeed or the attack will fail? What do you think? How smart are these guys, in other words? How complex is this event? What is the New Testament complement to it? The people, remember I told, I said a few weeks ago, this is, a, this is typified by the number 666, which is an antichrist number. What are these men trying to accomplish? Do they think they're going to run up there and take this city knowing that they've lied to Joshua, they didn't bring the, the devoted thing to God, um, they don't have enough guys, God is not with them, who are they fighting? They're fighting a city of maybe 20,000, guarded by very large people. Are they, what do they think? Victory? Or were they expecting defeat? 
Did they want defeat then? Did they get defeat? If that was their plan, that's what they got. What would be the motive of that plan? Why would you plan that? Again, what is the plan? Regardless, the Israeli army now is stampeded. It's routed. How many, how many came out and took them out? How many came out of the city and wiped this force out? Didn't wipe it out, just routed it. 3,000 are terrified. They retreat. They're probably, just based on the math, it's very likely that the force that comes out is at least 5,000. So they're probably outnumbered. But I'm also going to say to you that not only are they outnumbered, but the men coming out are physically vastly superior. And so the Israeli uh, military there is stampeded and terrified and retreat. But i got to explain why only 36 are killed. i got a battle that might be 5,000 against 3,000, and I have how many? One side is completely uh, routed and chased down. They flee. When you flee, what do you do? You drop your weapons and you run for your life. Because you're not going to fight. The first thing you say is, I don't need the ten-pound sword. i got to get out of here. So you're now what? Defenseless. Being chased down. You can't defend yourself. Only 36 are killed. What is that? That's a miracle. I should have had 2,000 killed. Maybe all of them killed. They chased them down. They have them pinned. How do they get, how do they, how did anybody live through that? What scared them? That 5,000 man army came out. Did that scare them? Giants, probably. They're always scared of giants, are they? Giants come out. Nobody has died yet. And then what happened? Somebody got killed. You imagine the very first guy that got killed? What the guys standing around did when they saw somebody get killed? Nobody's supposed to get killed. Again, Joshua 10.21, we're all supposed to come back. The enemy always dies, not us. We don't die. Uh-oh. The guy gets killed. It happens. And I want to know, are those foot soldiers or those officers? They at the front of the group? They in the back of the group? Are they the ones saying, don't run, turn around and fight? How did it, did these 36 get killed? Are these the guys that lie to Joshua? Are these the guys that are with Achan? Thirty-six, only thirty-six were caught by death. And again, that has to be a miraculous event. Imagine the pursuers. Can you imagine those guys coming back too? They're coming back. And their king says, okay, how many did you kill? Thirty-six. They didn't have any weapons. They were running. You only got thirty-six? Yeah, we only got thirty-six. How does that make you feel? Are they fast? How in the world did that happen? Covered in grease? You've got to explain that. I want you to ponder the circumstances of the battle. 
But even with that, AI had to feel good. They proved something. What did they just prove to everybody else in Canaan? You can kill an Israelite. It can be done. Because nobody thought it could. After Jericho, Israel walks out of Jericho, not one casualty. The unkillable could be killed. I have a notation to read number 16.1, because this is where we're going eventually. I'll finish next week. I'll wrap this part up. To make sure the visitors don't come back first. You never want to give answers to the visitors. Let me read. Uh, that's a joke for you people on the internet. I know. I know you're coming for me. This is the rebellion against Moses and Aaron. Now Korah, the son of Ishhar, the son of Kohath, Kohath, the son of Levi, with Dathan and Abraham, the son of Elihab, and the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took men, and they rose up before Moses with some of the children of Israel, 250 leaders of the congregation. Representatives of the congregation, men of renown, really good fighters. They gathered them against Moses and Aaron and said to them, You take too much upon yourselves, for all the congregation is holy, every one of them. And In other words, they're saying, You guys don't get to be the priests anymore. We're all going to be priests. Everybody can be a priest. God doesn't get to select the priests. We're just as much a priest as you. Why do you exalt yourself among the above the assembly of the Lord? What are the 250 men great fighters doing? By the way, I'm doing what to you? I am connecting the 36 killed. I'm saying that those are really good. That's the, uh, that's SEAL Team 6. Those are the good fighters. What's happening here in, in uh, with Korah, number 16? When Moses heard it, he fell on his face because he knew what? This is a rebellion, and when there's a rebellion against God and his authority and the men and, that he's put in leadership, what's going to happen to the rebellious? Not good. What's going to happen to the rebellion yours? That's not a word I know. What's going to happen to the rebels' children? Let me read it to you. I have to find it again. And that means take the glasses off. Oh my goodness, I can't find it. Why can't I find it? I need to find it. I can't see in the dark. Okay, I will tell you what happens to the children of Korah. They're spared. It will make you think when we read this later on that the children were killed. But they weren't. God does not blame children for the sins of their fathers. He didn't do it in Joshua chapter 7. He doesn't do it in Numbers 16. The Korah rebellion and Joshua are 
complementary. Just as there's a New Testament complement, and that is Matthew 25, 24 through 30, which is where somebody hides, buries his talent. And God comes to him and says, so you think I'm a hard man, do you? I'm not. But you think I am. That's your justification for burying what I gave you to shine forth. So that's a, uh, as I said, that's the New Testament reference, I believe, to Joshua as well. So this is where the musician comes forward. Notice how I said that, because today we just have a drummer and a piano player. And when you have a drummer and a piano player, what do you have? That's correct. You have one musician. So I said, oh, I know that was cold, wasn't it? But I've used that joke thousands of times. He's now, it doesn't affect him. 